0: Welcome to the Women with Fire podcast. I am Michelle Gifford. I am Sarah Allred. God is calling women around the world to stand up and make a difference. We call this your quest. God needs you. Learn from other women who are navigating their own quests. And through this podcast, light that fire as you embark upon your own. Let's do
1: this. Hello
0: to all of our wonderful listeners. This is Sarah Allred from the Women with Fire podcast. Now, if you didn't start listening to our podcast when it first came out, you may have missed this incredible interview with Susan Arrington Madsen, a best-selling author from Desert Book Company. Now This is one of my favorite episodes because not only does she have incredible books regarding pioneers, regarding the prophets, regarding mothers of the prophets, and soon to be released fathers of the prophets, she is also my mother. We get to talk a lot about what life was like growing up with her as a best-selling author and how it was she was able to write these books and have them appear on our doorsteps without her kids really knowing when she was writing. She's got some wonderful pieces of advice on how she made this all happen. So this is one of our classic interviews from early on when the podcast was called Mormon Mompreneur, and you may have missed it. So we're so excited to bring it back to you and we hope summer is going beautifully for you. Have a good one and enjoy this next episode of the Women With Fire podcast. Today is an amazing day. I am so excited to be here with one of my most favorite people in the entire world and feeling a little spoiled that I get this opportunity to introduce you to Susan Arrington Madsen. Susan was born and reared in the great Logan, Utah area and she is the daughter of the late Leonard and Grace Arrington. She is married to Dean Madsen, who is a retired professor of music from Utah State University, and they've had a wonderful, flourishing marriage. She is the mother of four daughters, three son-in-laws, and 13 beloved grandchildren, and she currently lives in Hyde Park, Utah. Some of the neat things about her education is that she is a graduate of the great Logan High School, and somehow she managed to raise four daughters that went to the local rivalry of Logan High and still turned out okay. She is a graduate of Utah State University and she got her bachelor's in journalism. Now, one of the unique great things about Susan is that she is an author. In fact, she is a best-selling author for Deseret Book Company, which is owned by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She has written nine books, one of which is called I Walk to Zion, which was her best-selling book with Deseret Book Company. And it highlights stories of children that were pioneers on the Mormon trail. It is an extraordinary, extraordinary book. I am particularly excited to interview Susan Arrington Madsen because she is my mother. So I, in fact, can be a little bit of a testament that somehow it is possible to be a woman of faith, a woman of business and a woman of motherhood and and have successes and grand adventures in this life and have the Lord's blessing with you as you go about his work. So I, again, am so excited that she is here, my sweet mom, Susan. So if I keep calling her mom, that's just super natural for me. And that's going to keep the conversation as natural as possible. And in the spirit of honesty, let's be really honest, just in this introduction that has taken us a couple of minutes to record, we've had four different interruptions. And welcome to the life of being women of faith and business and motherhood. And somehow we got through this great introduction unscathed, and we're excited to get talking. So, Mom, I am so glad that you're here, and I'm so excited to talk to you.
1: Well, I'm so glad to be here, Sarah, and there's no person I'd rather be than your mother.
0: Oh, you are kind. She has to say that. There are three other girls, but whoever she's with is her favorite, and that's how it's always felt. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that we could dive right into the beginning. I think we have so many listeners who are just going to want to know, how have you done this? How have you done this? So what better way to start than thinking of the very beginning? When is it that you felt like the writing bug really hit you, or were there some experiences that you had that helped you decide, oh my goodness, I enjoy writing?
1: Well, it all began, believe it or not, with a little newspaper called the Nifty News. The Nifty News was published uh, at the Adams Elementary School in Logan, which is where I went to elementary school. And about once a month, the sixth graders published a little newspaper, and we called it the Nifty News. And I was uh, I was interested in in being involved with that little newspaper. And I was a reporter, so I went around to several of the classrooms, and I interviewed teachers and students, and I did a little write-up and would submit that. And then the teacher would type it all up and put it on the old Ditto machines that they used to have. And people, kids today, don't know what a Ditto machine is. But in any case, what I found out was, number one, it was interesting to interview people and do stories. And number two, I got really positive feedback. And I had teachers compliment me because the newspaper went out to the, all the grades. And I just felt a lot of positive feedback from that. So that was where it really started. I went When I was a senior at, at Logan High, I was the editor of the school newspaper, which was called The Grizzly. And again, I enjoyed interviewing teachers and students and articles about things that were going on at the high school, and it was fun. And I found that I could put words on the paper and people would compliment me, oh, I enjoyed your editorial, or oh, that was a funny article you did on such and such, And so I really had a great experience when I was in high school doing that. Going to Utah State University, I did get my degree in journalism, but my mind changed a little bit about what kind of writing I would do because I was trained in doing newspaper work, but I realized as I began to think about getting married and having a family that I didn't want to get up and go to a newspaper office every day But I could do some freelance work, and even more importantly, with what we're talking about today, the opportunity arose for me to write a book with my father. This was an arrangement that certainly agreed with me, because basically, Dad and I were co-authors, but his job was to supply me with the research materials, and my job was to write and I would write a chapter, and he would call me up and say, it looks great, go to the next chapter. Or he'd say, well, I think you need to add a little bit more here about what it was like for them in Nauvoo, or you you need to tell a story here that we know of something that happened when ZCMI opened up or something. And that book happened to be the first book I ever published, and it was called Sunbonnet Sisters true stories of Mormon women and frontier life.
0: Fantastic. So it sounds like early on you had people around you that were giving you this kind of feedback. So you thought that this might be something that could take you somewhere one day, even from the tender age of maybe you would say 12 if you were in sixth grade.
1: Yeah, 11 or 12. And I have to mention too that I do come from a family of writers. My father, who served as church historian from 1972 to 1982, published, gee, I think we counted 24 books and hundreds of articles that were published in professional journals. And so he's spent his whole life uh, at the typewriter or in the archives, one or the other. Then I have two brothers, and some of your listeners might know one of them or the other. My oldest brother, James Arrington, is a playwright, so he writes plays. Someone might be familiar with Here's Brother Brigham, his one-man show of Brigham Young or the Farley Family Reunion series. Well, he wrote those plays and several others. They may not know that I have another brother, Carl, who I think is actually probably the best writer in the family. And he worked for People Magazine for eight or nine years and finally decided it was kind of a rat race and he had his feel of it. And so he went out on his own to freelance, but he's a very good writer. And even my mom published two cookbooks and did some book reviews for some periodicals. So writing was something that I was around all the time. It wasn't a big mystery, it was part of our family.
0: Fantastic, and one of my most favorite stories that I love hearing about you growing up is the sound that you regularly went to sleep hearing. Can you tell our listeners about that?
1: Oh, yes. My bedroom in our home in Logan was right next to my father's study. And every night I went to sleep to the sound of my father's manual typewriter. He was in there banging away on that manual typewriter into the wee hours of the morning. And that's how he got so much done.
0: You wonder how much that sound influenced your future <laughs> future experiences. That's exciting. So, Specifically in your writing career that you have had nurtured from such a young age, uh, whether that was mentors at Adams Elementary or that was hearing the typewriter at night or watching your mother publish these cookbooks or whatever happened, you have decided to hone in on writing for children. That is where your books are headed is to try and write so that children can enjoy some of these stories you've collected. How did you narrow your focus and how did you know that that was what you were going to be writing about?
1: Well, it, it almost came as a surprise to me. It was something that just sort of fell in my lap. I found out that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have three publications. They have the Ensign for the Adults, the New Era for the Young Women and Young Men, and then they have a third periodical a magazine called The Friend. And I was in between my, when I was in between my junior and senior year at Utah State University, I found out that they offered an internship. Each magazine offered an internship. And my brother Carl actually was awarded the internship for the new era. And one little known fact is that my brother Carl is the one who actually started what they call the Mormon ads. So I... Decided to apply for an internship, and for whatever reason, I decided to apply to The Friend. And I was very fortunate to be awarded that internship, and so I spent the summer at that magazine and learned from very professional people and very caring people how to write for children. In fact, I was put on a committee that sees every manuscript that would be sent in to The Friend. And that was a really interesting experience because some of the material that came in was pretty good. And when we would read a manuscript, we would write up in the corner either accept or reject or consider. So when the committee went through these manuscripts, they ended up in three piles. Well, I was also fibergasted at some of the really weird stuff that came into the friend. For example, they we received a feature article on Jack LaLanne. Now, you probably have to be over 50 to know who Jack LaLanne was. All I know is that he makes a juicer
0: that people love, right? Isn't does yeah, he make yeah, a he juicer? Probably
1: does. He's a phys- <laughs> he was a physical fitness wizard and he was like the first guy, the first person of either gender to have an exercise show. He was the first person to lead into an area that included Jane Fonda later. Uh, (laughs) And I remember my own mother ironing clothes and, well, watching him, and occasionally she'd stop and do an exercise with him. But I thought, who in the world would send an article on Jack LaLanne to The Friend. So I learned something really important, and that is, if you want to write, make sure you know who you're writing for and who you're sending your material to, because there's a lot of people that have no idea who they're mailing their material to. That was interesting. That's a great,
0: great story, and a little bit of a behind-the-scenes on what some of those employees at The Friend probably still experience.
1: Well, and and here's the the rest of the story that is quite interesting, is that years later, I had actually published a couple of books by this time, but I got a call from Eleanor Knowles, who used to be the CEO of Deseret Book. And after we knew each other, because I had worked on some books by this time, but she said, Susan, I have a question for you. Have you ever written for children? And I just sat up straight and said, well, as a matter of fact, I served this internship with a friend, and so I spent three months in pretty intensive work to learn how to write for children. And she said, really? Well, that's very interesting because Deseret Book is getting a lot of, we're getting a lot of requests from parents and teachers who want us to put out a book about the presidents of the church that would be written for young people. And we don't have one. Would you like to accept the invitation to write a manuscript for us on the presidents of the church for young people? And I jumped at it, and I ended up winning a $1,000 prize for the manuscript and also included a contract to publish it.
0: And this is where the Lord Needed a Prophet was born. Exactly.
1: Exactly.
0: All from your three-month experience with a friend of learning how to write for children and knowing that audience.
1: And at the time, I had no idea that I'd ever use those skills of writing for young people.
0: Now, you've really done some extraordinary and really unique books. The Lord Needed a Prophet, like we talked about, is all about stories of the prophets, but again, written for children. You've written Sunbonnet Sisters, which is about women pioneers. Now, you did have a series of books, starting with I Walk to Zion, that I walk to Zion being your, probably your biggest reaching book across the world with Deseret Book. And that is specifically written, yes, for children, but it's also written about children. And that seems to be where you've found your kind of your jive. You've found your niche in writing not only for children, but about children. What had brought you to that kind of a project?
1: Well, I have always been fascinated with with um, first person accounts of of journals and diaries and people who write their life histories. And I, at the same time, I also was in the midst of raising my own family. I was a mother, twenty four seven, and I have to say, I laughed a lot more than I cried while raising those girls, you girls. And I found motherhood just very, very rewarding. And I always got a kick out of the kind of unique perspective that sometimes children have. I mean, I remember when your oldest sister came home from school and just was really sad about breaking up with with a fellow that she'd been She really liked, in fact, she might have even been up at Utah State by this time, but she was in a situation where she was feeling bad about breaking up with this guy, and your younger sister was sitting there, and she said, I don't know why you're sad. I don't like boys, and I don't, I have no intention of having a boyfriend. (laughs) couldn't understand. (laughs) Couldn't understand. It was just so refreshing and funny. So I decided I wanted to write pioneer history, and I wanted to write first-person accounts because I think the person was there. They, they, write, they write about what they saw and what they felt. So somehow I just came upon the idea of what was it like to be a child crossing the plains? What was their perspective and what i found is that many of the adults of course were fully aware of the dangers and and they were tired and and they they knew that they had a long journey and were more aware of the dangers that were surrounding them and children in the Mormon Trail experience sometimes had a very different viewpoint. It was one of adventure, of excitement. This is the neatest thing I've ever done. This is, they enjoyed it. They went swimming in the evenings. They just, it was supposed, some, for some of them and many of them, it was the, a real adventure. And...
0: Which is amazing, because as I picture you as a mother, as I grew up under you, with you being my mom, that that is how you really tried to embrace motherhood. It was an adventure, and there was always time to go swimming, and there was time for fun. And sure, there were dangers, and there were worries and lots of concerns. But like you said, you saw a whole different perspective that was funny and worth writing about and could really uplift your spirits day in and day out.
1: I've seen it with you and your sisters that I find it really fun and it makes me feel good that when something happens like a bowl of cereal ends up on the floor upside down or you come in the kids have written on the wall with magic markers you first grab the camera and get pictures and then you clean up
0: then you grab the kid <laughs> <laughs> Well, I love this. I love this. And I think some of our listeners, as they hear that you were a mother 24-7, and yes, you'd been nurtured in writing for so long and had some really great experiences growing up, but there did come a point in which you were a mother 24-7. And I wonder if some of our listeners have had experiences in which they are in their own form of business, but also mom 24 seven. And maybe they're, maybe they're a hairdresser. Maybe they're selling makeup. Maybe they're a blogger. Maybe they're a photographer, maybe a design blogger. I don't know, but they feel that because they quote unquote work that they cannot relate to some of the other women in their church congregations or wards, and they feel that there's sort of a little bit of a disconnect. Did you ever feel that way? And if you did, how did you bridge those feelings of being able to connect with anyone, which you are so good at doing? But tell me about that experience.
1: Well, I really have been blessed with wonderful parents. And one of the many things that I learned from both of my parents was that even though both my my mother and father were well-known, had lots of friends. My father was known all over the church, and they just knew a lot of people. They still, when they sat down next to somebody at a dinner table or at a banquet or some kind of an affair, they were interested in the person they were sitting by. They didn't use it as an opportunity to talk about their latest book or their latest cookbook or what they were doing. They always were interested in that person that they were sitting by. And I've tried to emulate that. Everybody is interesting in some way and everybody's unique in some way. And it doesn't register with me whether the woman works or not outside of the home. I just try to be interested in her and what her life is like. And it's worked for me. And I'll tell you, your grandmother... Grandma Grace was born and raised in Wake Forest, North Carolina. She grew up and playing in a swimming hole that her father made in, out in the country and just was a country girl surrounded by tobacco fields. And at the other end of her life, my father served as church historian. She dined with prophets. She had dinner with the mayor of Salt Lake City or prominent businessmen. And she wasn't intimidated at all. She wasn't shy. She just enjoyed whoever it was she was with. And one of the things I specifically remember my father telling me is they'd been to a banquet of some kind. And my mother ended up sitting next to Camilla Kimball, Spencer W. Kimball's wife. And he said they spent the whole evening talking about roses, about growing roses in their rose garden. And... Both of them just were chattering away, and nobody else could get a word on, on edgewise.
0: So for some of our listeners, Spencer W. Kimball was the prophet of the church at that time, the prophet of the Mormon church. And so for her to sit there and talk about rose gardens with truly one of the most prominent two people in the entire worldwide faith. That is impressive and it makes me think in my mind if we can just remember as we feel like we're sitting at playgroup and we can't connect with the woman on the bench next to us to remember just to talk about the roses. (laughs) That's going to be our reminder of how to connect.
1: Good advice.
0: So what with, with these feelings that some of our listeners may have of, of feeling a little bit disconnected because they have chosen to work or maybe their situations are that they need to be working, what are some of the common misconceptions about Mormon women in the workplace?
1: Well, if you ask me, the number one misconception is that if you go out and get employment outside of the home, that all your children are going to go to heck. <laughs> and uh, it just isn't that simple. It isn't that black and white. I hope it's okay that I say that, but somehow there are many women who, if if they do have a child that has gone astray, and if they had been working at the time, that it was clearly her fault, the mother's fault, and yet there's so many stay-at-home mothers who give their lives, who teach and pray for, and they're there all the time, essentially. They have children, too, that go astray. And so to me, that's a misconception that we really need to take a look at.
0: I love your humor in that. I also love your boldness in, in helping us all understand that challenges will come in all of our situations. And that's a way that we can all relate. So did did you ever experience guilt as a mom? That you worked, you were you were writing books, you were moving forward professionally. Did you feel guilt and, and how did you tackle those feelings or what were your rules about being a working mom working within the home?
1: I don't want to make it sound too simple because it wasn't simple and yet I, I don't remember feeling guilt. One of the things I tried to do was to do the vast majority of my research and my uh, writing while my children were either in school, they were asleep, taking a nap, or they had friends over, and our house was a real magnet for our daughter's friends. I tried to do it at times when they were occupied doing other things and if i did slip into the study to do a little writing or research i just had gave myself a rule that i would stop for anything if if my daughter came in and said will you play pretty ponies with me i stopped that would have been or... me that was me <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm so sorry mom well
1: or worse can you come play barbie with me <laughs> that was that was a sacrifice i know
0: which kid that was <laughs>
1: <laughs> or i'm hungry i could you fix me a cheese sandwich you know i just had to had to stop i made myself stop and my brother carl he's asked me about this especially at the time i was working on a book cuz he could he saw me do it working in 30 minute increments or 45 minute increments and he'd say Sue I don't know how you do that I sit down and it takes me that long to kind of get back in the groove and how can you get anything done in just such short amount of time and I said well I have to learn to do it because if I if I don't do it then I don't write so I either do it this way or I don't write at all so that was
0: the decision in front of you that it's either I make 30 minutes count or this this is not going to be part of my yeah. life.
1: And one other thing I will mention is Sherry Dew once said uh, to write the biography of Gordon B. Hinckley for I don't know how many months it took her or even a year or whatever. She got up at 4 o'clock in the morning and showered and got ready and then she sat and worked on that book. And you know couple of hours a day adds up really fast, and before you know it, you've got a manuscript. And that's how she wrote that biography. It was early morning hours.
0: So that was a sacrifice that Sherry Dew vocalizes, that she had to make. She sacrificed sleep in order to write the biography of President Gordon B. Hinckley, who was a, a prophet, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, so what about you? Most of our listeners, if they could reach through the microphone, they would want to say, how did you do it with kids? Like, what did your life look like? You were a best-selling author at Deseret Book with four children all at home. How did you do it, and what were some of the things that made it happen?
1: Well, for one thing, my house was not immaculate. And I think you can spend a lot of time having an immaculate house. And I had to give somewhere. And I hope you don't feel like you grew up in, in squalor. <laughs> but I don't think you grew up in a house where you could see your reflection in the kitchen floor. It was clean to be healthy and safe. But I wasn't continually dusting and vacuuming and all this because that is a really time-consuming thing to do. So I had to give a little bit there. The other area where I saved a lot of time for more important things is I just didn't watch TV. I really didn't. It was just something that I knew would take up time and I just didn't ever turn it on.
0: And I can attest to that. I remember on a dozen occasions running upstairs to tell you something that was going on with some show or some actor or some actress. And in all fairness, you had no idea what I was talking about or who I was talking about. (laughs) And I remember specifically coming up and being, this was before I was married, of course, I was a teenager. And I came up to tell you how handsome this particular actor was. And I said, Mom, do you think he's handsome too? And you said, I sure think your father is handsome and that was the end of the discussion
1: (laughs) so some great responses right from the get-go
0: of how you made it work with kids so I would imagine that anyone who decides to do something like you have has had to sacrifice certain things you have sacrificed maybe an immaculate house growing up and it was a safe house and it was a fun house we had a great a great childhood and you sacrifice not watching tv and and being connected that way to some of those things as a mother have there been other sacrifices you've had to make or even things you you had to agree to do that you normally wouldn't do that happened because you're an author
1: well the big one is that I found out really quick that when you publish a book plan on giving talks speeches all the time lots and lots all the time lots and lots and this is where maybe you Felt like an orphan I don't know I hope not But I gave a lot of talks I still give talks I gave one Sunday On Mothers of the Prophets The publisher wants their authors To be willing to give talks Because you know Obviously it's good It helps their business As you spread the word About a book that you've written And you know Some people don't read They're interested In the Mothers of the Prophets Or they're interested In Children Crossing the plains. But they just don't read. And so they would love to come to a fireside or Relief Society birthday party or something and hear you tell the stories that that uh, are a part of your book. I think during the church sesquicentennial celebration, which was in 1997, I gave 86 talks. In one year. In one year. That's I mean, last time I checked, there were 52 weeks in the year, and so that tells you.
0: You probably rivaled the first presidency that year.
1: (laughs) I went as far away as Fresno, California, and I went as short a distance as three blocks down the street for my own Hyde Park ward.
0: Now, that is a year I remember as one of your kids that you were giving lots and lots and lots of talks. And that was a unique year because I felt like the way you managed that time away or, or those responsibilities was number one, everybody had to step up. Dad needed to be home or um, it was crockpot meals or whatever needed to happen. But second, you got us really, really involved in the sesquicentennial. We were, we went to Wyoming to talk about what, what is mom doing every Sunday twice on Sundays, even, you know, what, what are some of these things that she's talking about? You took us to Wyoming to show us the sites. You involved us that way. And even there was a big sesquicentennial celebration at Val Edwards stadium, if I remember right. And you took us down to that to involve us in the celebrations. And I think it helped us really, it bolstered our testimonies of what you were spending your time doing. I mean, that, that is you as a missionary. In so many forms, being able to share that message of those great pioneers.
1: If I accomplished one thing, I hope in addition to sharing the stories and their spiritual value, I hope that I imparted to my daughters and others who are watching. It could be a good thing for mom to have something positive outside of the home to be involved with that they could be proud of. I remember your younger sister Uh, When she was in, oh, probably second or third grade, I got a call from the elementary school that she was attending, and it was the librarian. And she said, have you received a Newbery Award? I said, what? (laughs) She said, well, your daughter said that you have received a Newbery Award. And I said, what on earth would she be thinking of? And I finally found out that she had seen my book, Growing Up in Zion. I received an award for the book, this book I wrote, which is about children's experiences growing up in Pioneer, Utah. And there's a gold seal on the cover. (laughs) And it's the gold seal of the sesquicentennial celebration. And they put that on my book. And so when the librarian was showing the kids some Newbery award-winning books and pointed to the seal, your younger sister raised her hand and said, my mom won that award. As <laughs> clear as so day. <laughs> she was so proud. So
0: That's wonderful. She was proud of you. She is proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> so along with all those experiences, can you wrap up in a package of what have been some of your greatest joys in in business and in faith, and and being a mom, all together.
1: Well, of course, I. The reality of life is that I, I don't think many people, and certainly I don't, really, have separate categories of business, faith, and motherhood. Uh, they, it's it's uh, all rolled into one big. It, grand experience. Uh I will comment though. Um as far as business and even the financial side of it, I'm not going to be shy and I'm going to be forthright and say that it was a wonderful thing to have some royalty coming into our family because it enabled us to do some really wonderful things with our kids. Paying the bills with my husband's salary, having some royalty money coming in enabled us to, for example, rent a motor home and went on a fabulous cross-country vacation where we took a month off and just went all over the country. We spent us. Summer in in Austria. Went to took the kids to Vienna and, and Salzburg and Northern Italy to Venice, and we had some wonderful experiences there. And it was fun and added to our ability to pay for piano lessons and gymnastics and for our kids to go to you know different kinds of activities that might uh, have been hard to afford. So I don't think there's anything wrong with admitting that it's been fun that way and rewarding. And as you've mentioned earlier, I really have tried to involve you and your sisters in what I was researching, what I was uh, writing about. You know, I remember taking you guys up to the sesquicentennial wagon train. We met them in Wyoming and had the opportunity to see that amazing uh, reenactment of the Mormon trail experience. But I I guess one of the things that's been especially, it's really been a blessing, is that here I have been able to write books about people that I absolutely have learned to love. And you know, there's with a very few exceptions, there's nobody famous in my books. The only one that could approach being famous would be probably Brigham Young. But other than that, these are people that, even within their own groups, uh, the wagon trains, uh, they were people who were not in the front leading the way and blazing the trail, but so many of them were in the back of the wagon trains and walking through the dust kicked up by those in the front part of the wagon train. They were humble, committed, and we're really the backbone of the church and of the restoration. And I think, I particularly when I wrote Mothers of the Prophets, and I've thought so many times, these women would never in a million years have believed that in the year 2016 that we would be sitting in a Relief Society uh, lesson or or a family home evening Or youth fireside, and we would be talking about them and the family they raised and the difficulties they faced, and it just wouldn't out of it would be inconceivable to them that anyone would be talking about them, especially this long after they had their turn on earth. It's just been a great blessing to become acquainted with the lives of these humble people and with Mothers of the Prophets also. Here's 16 women that had two things in common. One was they each had a son who became president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But the only other common thread that I could find among these women was that religion was an important thing to each one of them. There's not one of those mothers for which religion was, you know, casual or non-existent. They all considered their religious beliefs to be very precious, and they were interested and committed to to the things that they had a testimony of. And other than that, they were just as different from each other as night and day. Some of them were outgoing and funny. Some of them lived a long time, well into their 80s. Wilfred Woodruff's mother died when she was 26. Wilford was only 18 months old. Uh, several of them had serious health problems. One of them experienced a divorce. One of them married a non-member. And so you can find a broad range of experiences and personalities. But as I say, there was only a couple of things that they had in common. But one of them was definitely that, they, that, import, that religion was very important to them.
0: What an amazing closing message for women in general just that we may not feel in the world like the leader of the pack and the leader of the wagon train in so many ways but what makes these women have influence and impact is going to be their response to their faith and their response to the call of motherhood or whatever gifts and talents they've been given that there there is a place for for everyone
1: everyone plays a role now, I want to share with you and your listeners a, a quote that I came across that I used on a dedicatory page of my book about these women. And the quote is from Will Levington Comfort, who is an early 20th century novelist, not a member of the LDS Church, but a writer. And before I read the quote, I want to define one word. That word is Avatar. Avatar is defined as meaning deity on earth. And here's the quote. I believe mothering is the loveliest of the arts, that great mothers are handmaidens of the spirit, to whom are entrusted God's avatars, that no prophet is greater than his mother. Sort of puts it all in perspective.
0: If we could all remember that every morning when we... We wake up the opportunities and responsibilities that have been granted to us. And thank you for sharing that. Just as a closing, almost a little bit of a for fun way to end this this podcast and this conversation with you, so grateful you would be willing to do this with me. We like to ask our guests on this podcast, what are your three tips that fellow Mormon mompreneurs could do now? to get started in whatever their dreams may be as they're wanting to explore a life of mixing business and faith and motherhood. How would you advise them?
1: Well, first of all, as far as my experience is concerned, it really helps to have a mentor. It helps to have someone, whether it's a parent or a sibling, a child, a friend, a neighbor, a visiting teacher a seminary teacher, whoever. It is important to have somebody that you can talk to who knows you and is wanting the very best for you and is concerned about your welfare. It's really something that if possible, you do better if you have some support. And I'm speaking only from my own point of view, but uh, certainly my father was a mentor. My brother Carl was a very special mentor. Lucille Reading at the Friend magazine was a mentor. I've just been blessed with a lot of people around me who encourage me. Secondly, and again, this relates to writing, but this is my experience. That is that whatever it is you write about or that you do, make sure it's something that you really enjoy. If you're writing about a topic, make sure that it's something that you are fascinated with. That if you walked into a bookstore and found a book about Christmas during pioneer times, would you pick it up? Would you glance through it? Would you buy it? Or would you look elsewhere for something else? If you found a book about the second rescue of the Willie Martin Handcart Companies, would you pick it up? Would you be interested? I have an acquaintance who was actually asked to write a book for Deseret Book on a topic that she really was totally disinterested in. It, it was boring. She just loathed at the time that she had to put into this book. Well, guess what? The book came out, and it was boring. It was dry, and therein lies the reason of why that can happen. So you want to make sure that you're spending your time on something you enjoy. And Sarah, you, with your photography, you love photography, and you're good at it, and your clients have been happy, and it's just, it's fun for me to watch you as you are taking family pictures and things like that. So that makes it more fun.
0: And that goes way beyond, like you said, that applies so much to writing, but that also applies to any other avenue of business that our listeners may be in. Maybe they're um, selling makeup or they're part of a a workout group, or maybe they're, like we said, doing uh, blogging for fashion or something, that it needs to be something that really that you believe in, that you can stand behind That The motivation can't just be green cash in your pocket because it will still come out boring.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, as far as the third piece of advice, be cautious about setting up a timeline. I mean, I know that there's plenty of people who will say, you've got to set a date, you've got to stick with it, it'll make you... Accomplish your goal and make sure that you do that. But I, one of the things I've enjoyed about the way I have done my writing and my publishing is that I'm my own boss. And if Desert Book has to wait another couple of months for something they know I'm working on, then so be it. And that's part of my ability to have done this with raising children, is that if if I had planned a day to write from eight in the morning till four in the afternoon. On my the chapter that I was working on, and then, when the kids got up, if one of them has a terrible earache, well, the computer goes off the the plans for that day are put on the shelf, and I take care of this child who might need to go to the doctor or may want me to sit with him on the sofa and watch the brave little toaster or something and to me that 's been a, a blessing and a real advantage is that I set my own timeline and that's what I live by. Now I'll share a very personal experience that I had that shows the importance of taking what time you need in a, a world that is very unpredictable. In 1982 is when my father and I decided to do this book together, Sunbonnet and Sister's. And we had started it, oh, I'd probably done two or three chapters in this book, when my mother passed away. And, of course, I was completely devastated. And I, all I could think about, and all I felt so sad. And it was such a loss for me that I think it was, it started to be weeks. I wasn't getting anything done, and weeks went by, and it turned into months, I wasn't doing any writing. I just couldn't. I just wasn't in the frame of mind. So... After a little while, my father called one day and said, Listen, I understand it's hard for you because Mama's gone now. And I'm wondering if maybe we ought to have a third person join us in this project. And we could turn the bulk of these chapters over to this third person. And that would get you off the hook and give you the time you need to to grieve and whatever. And I told him I'd think about it. But within a couple of days, my brother Carl, again, who's, who's helped me so many other times, uh, called me just to say hello. And I told him about my phone call from dad. And he said, Sue, don't even think about turning this over to another person. He said, this was your idea. You've got a bit of a start on it. And just say, I need the time that I need. But don't agreed to turning it over to another person. And that's all I needed to hear. I knew he was right. And sure enough, within a short amount of time, I thought my my thoughts turned to the fact that I knew my mother would be very happy and proud that dad and I had written a book together and published it. And so with that in mind, I was ready to go. And finish the book and you know, if I'd have turned it over to somebody else, I probably would never have written another book. I would I would have just thought, Well, I just can't do it because things happen and so that was a really important thing for me to learn.
0: Wow, what a powerful story that brings it all full circle of the importance of of having no timeline and even how those mentors can step in at the right time to absolutely alter everything because like you said had your brother carl not stepped in and said don't you dare give this opportunity away just take the time you need that who knows if the other eight books would have ever come to fruition and some of the remarkable experiences you've had because of those accomplishments so thank you thank you for sharing your message of motherhood and of um, faith and in the ways that you've been able to balance your life and trial and error and do so many things to, to accomplish uh, the Lord's work and, and to grow your own life. So thank you for being with us so much today. I hope you've enjoyed your time and I hope you've been able to get your message that you want to our listeners.
1: Thank you, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. And I give my best to the women out there who have so much to give and so much to offer and are stalwarts in their faith.
0: We have a lot to do. And with, with women like you to inspire us and keep us moving, I, I see good things. I see good things in the future for so, so many women. So thank you again for being with us. Hey, thanks for listening to the Women with Fire podcast. Your support means a lot to us. In fact, your support is what makes this podcast possible. If you want to connect more with the guests we've had on our podcast and connect more with Sarah and Michelle, the creators of the Women with Fire podcast, find us on Instagram at TheWomen with Fire or find us in our Facebook group. Simply search Women with Fire and join the group. We'll see you there.